Father God, please be with us tonight. Put your spirit at work amongst us. Uh, please help us as we look at your word. Show us what we need to hear. Give me the right words and the right mannerisms. And, and take away from me any glory. Take it all for yourself. For us, teach us and build us up, please. Help us then to, to sing your praises afterwards and to pray together. Amen. Last week we started a series in Titus. Um, I tried to give an overview of the letter then. Uh, I tried to give three themes that I reckon run through it. Um, it's a New Testament letter written by Paul to Titus, hence the name. Titus is one of his missionary travelling companions. And he had left Titus behind on Crete with the task of getting this fledgling Cretan church up and running, set up and and ready to stand alone when Titus moves on. And and this letter is Paul writing to him to say, okay, your your time's pretty much up. Finish off the work, then come and meet me. And the three themes I tried to pull out last time were, were firstly, that Paul writes about the Christians on Crete as if they're supposed to be a new nation. They're a new people called for Jesus, distinct from the Cretan culture around them. And then secondly, they're to be set apart from that Cretan culture by the way that they live. The letter is full of commands to do good stuff. That's what's going to mark them out, a sort of long-term devotion to living good lives, as if they're taking up a career, a profession of godliness. And then underlying that, the third theme is the motive for them. And it comes up several times in the letter. It's a clear knowledge and response to the gospel. The good news that Paul and Titus and others have preached them about Jesus. So that's there in chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, that through no righteousness of their own, and despite the fact that they were manifestly bad people, mired in wrong, Jesus in his kindness and love saved them offering them the the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit and justification and the inheritance of eternal life. And and so the question I finished with last time was to ask what our ambition was as a church. Did did we share the ambition from chapter 3 verse 14 to see our people in this church devoted to doing good and providing for urgent needs and, and living productive lives for the gospel? This week, ambition could come into it again. Uh, We're going to look at the kind of leaders that Titus is to appoint in Crete. So, it will be right for us to be thinking, is that me? Paul writes elsewhere that those aspiring to be overseers of their church desire a noble thing. And, And you may or may not have that aspiration, but whether you're in leadership now or you see yourself as one day being involved in church leadership, or or leading in other capacities, parenting, or or leading home groups, or leading Bible studies, or or discipling younger Christian men and women, it's worth us looking at the characteristics of a New Testament leader here, and, and asking, how do I measure up against that? How do I encourage those characteristics in myself? How do we as a church nurture and encourage those characteristics in each other? Because it's not just the elders that he's talking about here. The pattern that Paul lays out is very Christ-like. 
And, and the qualification for leadership is really to be clinging to and imitating Jesus, following his pattern. And so in chapter 2, as, as Paul opens things up to the whole church, it, the same teaching really applies to them. This is what mature Christianity aspires to. So hopefully, rather than being a, a seminar on models of church leadership, which I'm, I'm not in any way qualified to give, uh, that the real thing to take out of this is going to be seeing the difference that the gospel makes for the way that people live. So let's read Titus 1, and then we'll dive into it. Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised from the beginning of time, uh, from before the beginning of time, sorry, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group, they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. So, Titus has been left here on Crete with these churches. And he's got this challenge of getting them established. And central to that is going to be the task of appointing elders. Overseers within the church. Because when Titus moves on and goes to join Paul, they've got no idea if they'll ever be able to come back. Someone they trust needs to be there, to be a, a solid leadership, in place to, to teach the churches, to keep them focused on the gospel, and, and to rebuke them when they go wrong, to set them straight to help them keep their eyes fixed on Jesus and not get sidetracked or taken in by the assumptions of the culture around them. As far as we can see, the Cretan church seems to be relatively young, relatively immature. And whether that's because it's recently planted or simply because it's not had much clear teaching, we don't know. 
But what we do know is that the Cretan culture around them is difficult. We've got this uncomfortable quote in verse 12. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And and it's not Paul being racist. It's a quote from Crete's foremost philosopher, who, who they respect immensely, summing up something about their culture. Other commentators testify to the same stuff and and the Cretans themselves seem to acknowledge it, even approve it. The values that they hold are are fundamentally different to those of this young Christian people. And so if the leaders of the church don't get that and don't understand how distinct they're meant to be from that community and don't have that deep appreciation and feeding on the gospel which would motivate them to be distinct, Everything's going to go wrong. So look at verses 10 and 11. And we've got, there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. There are many people, many rebellious people, And looking on to verse 13, the way that Paul ultimately seems to want these guys to be challenged and turned back in rather than excluded, I I think that's not malicious false teachers coming in from outside to take advantage of a vulnerable community. I think the rebellious people are probably members of the church who just aren't holding to core Christian teaching. And It is for dishonest gain in verse 11. It's not just well-meaning but misguided muppets. This is maybe the the strong characters. It's the charismatic folk who've got a few ideas about theology for themselves, the way things should be, and maybe then have twigged that they can supplement their income quite nicely with the collection given for teachers in church. Or, Or maybe it's the dishonest gain of the power that they get the influence over their community, the status and the authority, or perhaps just that ego boost from being the front man. Any preacher knows that those are big challenges. I'm constantly dogged in sermon preparations by concerns about how I will appear. It's easy to take positions of leadership for bad reasons. We mustn't get a few glimpses here of the kind of things that they're teaching. Um, I'm not sure this matters to our working out this passage here, but it does fit us nicely into New Testament context. As elsewhere in the New Testament, it's particularly the circumcision group who are causing trouble. Uh, They seem in verse 14 to be talking about Jewish myths and merely human commands. In verse 15, the way that Paul challenges them might suggest that they're particularly concerned about purity. And then later, in chapter 3, verse 9, he makes a comment about their interest in genealogies. Who's descended from whom? And with arguments about the law and how it applies to Christians. It's pretty likely then that what's going on is that there are are Jewish Cretan Christians who are tending to absorb Christianity back into the framework of Judaic law where your membership of the people of God depends on your circumcision and on your ancestry and on how righteously you live. Keep these rules and you'll be okay with God. Cherish this ancestry and identity and you'll be okay with God. But the gospel is neutered by that. Because Paul says the only way to be alright with God 
is the way that he makes his people all right, the free gift of the cross. And I think that's part of why we've got this letter at all. I I puzzled over this for a while, thinking Titus surely knows why he's been left down on Crete. He doesn't need telling this stuff. But I think here we've got an open letter sent to him, so that the circumcision group can see for themselves Paul, the ultra-Pharisee, who once kept the law better than they ever could, Paul is telling them to listen to Titus, the uncircumcised Greek. He's got the right of it. As I said, I'm not actually sure that what they're teaching particularly matters. I think the crucial thing is at the end of verse 14. Whatever else they're teaching, they're rejecting the truth. That is, the the truth that he refers to in verse 1. The the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. The trustworthy message in verse 9. The gospel that he unpacks and lays out for them in the second half of the letter. And because their preaching and their lives are not based on that truth, what we see in verse 15 and 16, they do not actually know God. Despite all their teaching about law and holiness, they are not ceremonially pure. They are corrupted. In verse 16, they're detestable, useless, unfit for doing anything good. Which, remember in Titus, doing good is the whole purpose that Christ has called his people to. How can they build the church up then? If Titus leaves the Cretan churches with them in charge, they're stuffed. So, He has to find good elders, trusty shepherds instead for these churches in Crete. Oops, got the wrong point there. Um, Men that he can rely on to teach and to build up a mature church, but also men who he can rely on to stand against and rebuke the people who lead in the wrong direction. Rebuke them and then in verse 13, 14, bring them back into sound faith. So fairly swiftly, we've got a character profile in verses 5 to 9, of what a suitable elder looks like. I think Paul splits into three areas. There's home life, public life, and then teaching. And the the key idea is blamelessness. That word comes up twice. Once for their private life, once for their public life. Obviously it doesn't mean sinlessness. That would be hopeless, unreasonable and impossible. (laughs) the, the, The word here doesn't mean perfect. That's a different word that's reserved for the, the unblemished perfection that God, God's people will have in heaven. Not yet. Rather, it's the idea of integrity. Integrity appropriate to someone in public office. Being unimpeachable, unaccused, uncorrupted. So, three areas. First of all, Elders to be blameless in their family life. Got verse 6 there. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Does it seem harsh that an otherwise very competent individual could be barred from a position of service or authority because of stuff that other people do in their personal life? There's at least two really good reasons for that. The, the first is simply, it's about demonstrating competence for the task. Paul gives Timothy a similar instruction in 1 Timothy 3. And he asks how someone could take care of God's church. 
God's family, as a sort of surrogate father, if they haven't already shown that they can oversee and teach and love in their own family. A church is not a business. The personal aspect matters. It's not to be run like a company. It's a body. It's a family. And so the leadership is a a parenting and husbanding kind of task. Just bigger with less contact time. So, if someone can't pastor their own family with all the love and the hours and the energy they have for that, how could they husband a weak and a needy church? It, it, It doesn't work. They haven't got the skills. And perhaps if someone's family situation is going to trouble, even if it's clearly through no fault of their own, perhaps even then Paul would still disqualify them from leadership, maybe compassionately, freeing them up to focus on what matters first, their, their marriage or their children. Either way, an elder needs to be blameless. They mustn't be open to charges of hypocrisy or incompetence. Remember, they're they're being called to be a distinct people in Crete. They're displaying God's glory in the way that they love him, in the way that they lead different lives. That means the leaders can't be people whose family life will undermine the gospel that they profess. A second reason, I think, for that instruction is, is simply that your closest relationships show who you are. How are you going to select good leaders? How, how do you know the state of someone else's faith? How, how do you see whether they're godly or not? A, a single person in church can put on a, a public facade of goodness that might fool most people most of the time. But in a family, they see you at your worst. Spouses and children see you when you're most exhausted, most frustrated, angriest. They, they see things that you, you would hide from others because you're ashamed, but you, you can't hide them within the close confines of your home. They see excesses which others wouldn't. And, and so in the way that husbands and wives and fathers and children interact, you get a window into their hearts. And the Bible's picture of marriage is lovely. It's one of the, the clearest and most powerful descriptions of the way that God loves and cares for and desires his people. And it's a wonderful part of the poetry of the gospel that we as the church will be the Lord's bride in Revelation. But just as marriage is a beautiful picture of God's love for his people, it, it, it's a cracking demonstration of how badly we fall short. I was told just before we were married that the first six months would show me my sin. Uh, and it's true. It's true. I'm slightly dreading November when I start finding out how, how fatherhood's going to do the same for me. Okay? There's no way that an elder is going to be found sinless on inspection of their family. But you might be able to see their response to that sin. Is their family life infused with gospel grace? Is there humility and forgiveness? Is there consistent readiness to put others first? Do they love their family as Christ loves the church? Are they blameless in that sense of the gospel being integrally worked out in their lives? Or or do their closest relationships reveal prideful and bitter hearts, a selfishness that undermines and discredits their message. 
An elder must be blameless in their family life. Just a couple of notes there. Um, Faithful to his wife, I think, implies committed monogamy. So it doesn't necessarily exclude widowers or the single. And similarly, obedient, having obedient children probably doesn't exclude those without children. But in both of those cases, it would be wise for Titus or a church to be looking for other evidence. Does this person really have pastoral ability? How, how do they really cope in the tangle of messy relationships? In a modern church environment, then, giving people a chance to serve in, in youth work or home groups, that, those are excellent places to, to develop and to test those kind of character traits. Also, we have lots of opportunities. Do talk to me or Dan or Andy later if you're interested in, uh, in youth work especially. Another note, that the line about believing children, that probably doesn't extend into their adulthood. It's probably about children when they're living at home. And it's probably more to do with being faithful to their father than necessarily Christian faith. Essentially, has the way that they've dealt with their children engendered loving, respectful relationships that you would want to have in church? Or has it driven them to wild, prodigal son-like disobedience? Have they got the track record to be a competent pastor? Second set of qualifications for eldership. They need to be blameless in public life. Why? Well, well, because they're managing God's household. It's a high-profile thing then, verse 7. If you compare this list of qualifications to the parallel one in 1 Timothy 3, it it feels like Paul makes a slightly different point. Timothy was based in Ephesus. It it was a well-established church. It it seems to have had a tradition of elders already, and there's an assumption that people there are aspiring to eldership. And Timothy's really just helping that church to select the right people. Mature Christians, respectable and established in the faith, not new converts. In in Titus here, I think Paul seems less worried about respectability. And I I think that's because he's not so interested in what the Cretan culture thinks. The Cretan standards are are calibrated wrong. And so a lot of verses 7 and 8 go beyond the list of qualifications in Timothy. And I think the point is that the elders have to represent a distinct culture of the church. They have to be clearly not Cretan. So where Cretan culture is one of liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons, the elders are to represent a counterculture. So they have to be blameless in public life. There's, uh, I think, five negative statements, six positive statements which build up that picture for us. Not overbearing. So not riding roughshod over their church and decision making. Not being brutes. Not quick-tempered or violent. Temperate in respect to alcohol. And particularly, unlike the rebellious teachers they've had, not, not pursuing dishonest gain, not liars. Do you see how that contrasts us there? They've got to not be like the Cretan culture around them. Instead, the six positive comments paint a picture of someone much more Christ-like. Hospitable. So that's not just feeding people from time to time. I think here it carries danger. Because in time of persecution of church, taking in and looking after needy Christians will expose you to unwelcome attention. They need to love what is good. So delighting 
in doing good for those around them, delighting in serving those around them. And then self-controlled and upright and holy and disciplined and frankly it's an imposing list and it makes me aware of my failings. And we've got to see there's a high standard. These positions of leadership in church, they're not something we should aspire to flippantly or, or treat lightly. It, it might be that you yearn for more responsibility. Or it might be that you find it being assigned to you when you don't really want it. But, but either way, be prayerful. Take it seriously. Challenge yourself to change and to meet the criteria. Pray for us and for others in position of leadership. But because these are tough standards. We need the Father to, to send his spirit and transform and change and equip us. Elders need to be blameless. If that seems like a high standard, why, yes, I agree. Unachievable. Crucially, it's the third qualification that everything springs out of. If you read verses selectively from Titus 2, it would be really easy to paint an impression that it's all about what you do. Being good people. But with each set of instructions, Paul is really careful to anchor things back into the Gospel. So, verse 9, the elders are to be blameless in their teaching. More than that, more than just saying the right things, they are themselves to hold firmly to that trustworthy message. And it's only based on that sound doctrine, that that truth that leads to godliness from verse 1, it's only based on that that they're going to be able to refute false teaching and encourage their church. I think Paul applies the same standard to himself in, in Galatians when he says, if anyone else, even me, comes back to you preaching a different gospel, ditch them, they're cursed. A church leader has to be blameless in this, knowing that none of their actions, none of their qualifications, none of their pastoral successes or or their numbers of bums on seats on a Sunday, or, or none of their study, or their charisma, or their leadership, none of that qualifies them for the job. Now, as Paul says of himself in Titus in chapter 3, verse 3, at, at one time we too were foolish. We, we too lived in malice and envy. And it's only by the generous, self-sacrificing love of Jesus that we're released for something better. Or in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, which we'll look at next week, it's only by the revealing of the grace of God and then the revealing of Jesus that they can be taught to say no to their old lives and be called to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives of people to, to please their Lord. All of the unattainable Goodness and respectability of verses 5 to 9, all of their not cretinness is going to spring out of not being good quality folk, but being honest, humble sinners responding to a beautiful saviour. I think that's the, the key qualification the rest comes from. It, it's the pivotal verse of chapter 1. And really it's the take-home point of the evening. Look, look at the difference that the Gospel makes. So verse 10, we've got these rebellious folk. 
And they seem to just be guys who are, are basing their teaching on what they think. Or on tradition. Or on the culture around them. And so they're in step with Jewish culture. Or they're in step with Cretan characteristics. And they probably had ideas, not unreasonably, about things like the kind of foods that were pure, the kind of people that were pure to hang around with, the kind of actions and behaviour that made them pure. But the bitter irony is that because they've defined their own ways to get pure, to get right with God, and because they've lost sight of the trustworthy message, They've got no way to be clean before God. Paul and Titus, they they know that it doesn't matter if they're circumcised or not. If they eat kosher food, okay. If they stick to ceremonial washing, fine. But if they achieve some higher wisdom peddled by a Gnostic preacher, who cares? In verse 15, to, to the pure, all things are pure. They are irrevocably washed clean by Jesus. But people who don't know that, who don't receive and hold on to that message, they've got no other route to cleanliness. They are corrupted in their conscience. And he says even their minds are corrupted. They've blinded themselves with their own teaching. See what a difference the Gospel makes? Paul says in verse 13, rebuke them sharply, call them back, heal them, save them from this faith, bring them back as you would a wayward child. So this trustworthy message, Jesus offers you cleanness. A way to live a changed life. On the other hand, for those who do hold firmly to that trustworthy message, Jesus Jesus is what makes them pure. To them, all things are pure. There's no panic about regulations and ceremony. They're the ones who are going to know what Jesus has done for them so well that they'll be able to respond like verses 5 to 9. They'll be able to show hospitality. They'll they'll be able to show that appetite for goodness. They'll begin to develop self-control, uprightness and holiness and discipline because the Spirit will be at work in them. So I think the question we should be asking is this. How can we as a church nourish leaders like that? We've got the the privilege of of loads of young Christians passing through our congregation. We can equip them and send them on. How do we help them to become like these guys? How do we challenge and turn people round when they're infatuated with the wrong stuff? Or how can you and I aspire to this model of Christian maturity when when we know the reality of our hearts and how far short we fall in so many places? How can we teach and encourage each other in the face of that? And Paul says in in verse 9, hold firmly to that trustworthy message. So let's get that gospel on our lips when we speak to each other. Why doesn't that come naturally to us? How better to encourage me than to remind me of my standing with Jesus? What a sound doctrine. What a a rock to build my faith on. How better to challenge me when I go wrong than to remind me that the only place I can find lasting satisfaction and fruitfulness with any security is in my Lord. How better to refute those alluring promises of the world than to show that we have incomparably greater riches in what Jesus has done. 
get that gospel on our lips and in our conversation with each other day to day. Let's feed each other on the gospel. It should be the core of our preaching. Let's build it into our home groups, into our personal conversations, into the way that we pray for each other. Meditate on it deeply for ourselves. How are your quiet times? Is that a struggle? Are you developing your, your appetite? Are you nourishing yourself daily? Are you soaking up this message? Know and hold to that trustworthy message you've received. Because that's how we'll be matured into this kind of Christ-like character in verses 6 to 9. A people set apart by God to serve his purposes. Let me pray. And then we're going to have a time of response.